This week's scripture is going to be Mark 6. We're going to start with verse 30. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now many saw them going and recognized them. And they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd, and he began to teach them many things. My name is Steve. I'm the associate pastor here at Regeneration, and I just want to say welcome again to all of you, especially those who may be new or visiting. We're glad that you're with us. Let's pray, and then we will spend some time reflecting on this story from Mark's Gospel. Father, we do want to pause this morning and recognize the moment that we're in, this transition that our church body faces, and we're excited to see what you do as we take a step of faith. And we've done our best to be diligent and to cover our bases, but we also know there's a lot of room here for your spirit to move, and so we just trust that this move is the right move in the right time and that you are going to use it for your kingdom and for your glory. And so may we just be available for however you want to move. And may we continue to work together to make this church a space for people to explore what it means to follow Jesus. And may more and more folks experience the good news of Jesus, his death and his resurrection, the grace that you offer through our community, through your word, and through what happens here on Sunday mornings. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, Mark chapter 6. A couple years ago, there was an article in Sports Illustrated, and it was looking at the dramatic rise in participation in physically challenging events. Everything from uh, half and full marathons to triathlons to Tough mutters to Spartan races, even things like CrossFit. There's been an incredible spike in participation in all these kinds of things over the last decade. So the author was trying to look at these things and figure out why are we participating in this so much more. And so they looked at a bunch of different reasons. Everything from we just live in a more health-conscious culture to better marketing to social media. We see our friend doing some like Tough mutter thing and like all victorious at the end. And we're like, I want to do that. So we sign up for them. Again, just a huge spike in that. The most interesting thing that I thought, though, that came out of this article was this. One of the race organizers, in fact, I think it's the guy who organizes the rock and roll marathon and half marathons. Anybody here done one of those? I've done one in Providence. It was amazing. It was pouring rain, and so they had to like cancel half the bands because people were going to get electrocuted and stuff like that. But it's still amazing. It's still amazing. Anyway, this guy said, the reason that people love these events, love these races, is because they allow us to quantify our fun. They allow us to quantify our fun. I thought that was fascinating. We live in a world where more and more everything has a number attached to it. Now we've even figured out how to count our fun. And personally, I've got sucked into this myself. I like to run. I love these kinds of things. And there's few things in life that are better for my soul and my mind and my well-being than going on a long run. Now, a while ago, I lived in Durango, Colorado. Anybody know where Durango, Colorado is? southwest corner of the state. It's a funky small town where people sort of flock there because they love doing outdoor activities. It's considered the mountain biking capital of the world and the joke in Durango is that the bikes are worth more than the cars. And having lived there, there's a lot of truth to that joke. Now in Durango there are some incredible mountains and trails and so while I lived there I discovered the joy of trail running. 
Now, running around in the hills was a lot of fun and brought a lot of life to me, but I found that it wasn't enough. And so I discovered that there was a series of trail races over one summer that I was living there. And so I signed up for these. There were four races. And I thought, oh, this is going to be great. This is going to help me be consistent and disciplined and work hard. And, of course, it's going to help me quantify my fun. I'm going to know if I'm getting better, if I'm doing it right. So just a quick story about my first race. The first race was set up into two courses. There was a four and a half mile course and then a seven mile course. And since it was the first time that I'd ever done anything like this, I thought, I'll sign up for the short one. And so my primary goal at this first race was to avoid getting lapped by any of the long course runners. Then race day comes and I'm warming up and I discover that the Durango High School cross country team is running in the race as well. And so then I thought to myself, okay, new goal, beat the high school kids. <laughs> so I accomplished my first goal. I was not, at least to my knowledge, lapped by any of the longer course racers. But as I got towards the end of the race, I realized I'm getting trashed by the cross country team. They are taking me to school, literally. <laughs> But there's this moment where towards the very end of the race, we kind of come down out of the mountain and into this meadow, and there's a clearing, and you can see the finish line off in the distance, and I can see all the people who are between me and the finish line, and I notice that there's still one more cross-country runner on the course, and so I thought, I'm going to beat her. So I start upping my tempo and I'm getting ready for the strong finish and I'm actually even gaining some ground and all of a sudden I notice that over to the side is a guy that's really cheering her on. I don't know if it was her dad or her coach or whatever, but he's really into it, calling out her name, encouraging her to finish strong. And he looks at me and he sees that I'm gaining some ground on her and he looks at her and he looks back at me and he looks at her and he goes, bury that guy. which is exactly what she proceeded to do. <laughs> so that was the story of my first trail race. But even despite that, I was hooked. And so this idea of measured improvement, being able to mark improvement, became a sort of obsession, right? I was able to run a five-mile course in 40 minutes. Then the next time I ran it, I wanted to cut that down to 38 or 37 or whatever my goal was. Again, we count just about everything in our culture, right? Whether it's our net worth or our friends, now we even are able to count our fun. And we live in what many people have called the quantification of everything. Which I think it raises attention for those of us who are trying to follow Jesus. Who are trying to, as we like to say around here, do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly. The quantification of everything reveals that there's, I think, something good, right? There's this deep desire in us to know. To know, am I doing things right? Am I okay? There's this desire for clarity, particularly on the issue of am I acceptable? Am I good? Now the good news, the gospel of Jesus, and we celebrated this very clearly last Sunday, of course, on Easter, is that we are acceptable because Jesus has made us acceptable through his death and his resurrection. But I think there's still this tension, there's still this question that a lot of us wrestle with. Am I doing life right? Am I moving in the right direction? Am I growing? And so in a data-oriented society, how do we measure the immeasurable? How do you quantify spiritual growth? 
And I think at some level we understand that spiritual growth doesn't work in this sort of nice, neat, linear fashion, like a lot of other things that we try to count. There are fits and starts and two steps forward and a couple steps backwards, and oftentimes it's the things that we mess up that teach us the most, right? So what I want us to do this morning as we reflect on this story from Mark is to think through the conditions that make growth possible. We can't will ourselves to grow spiritually, but this is also not a passive quest either. We don't just sit around waiting for growth to happen. So what we can do is seek out the best conditions for growth to occur. And this brings us to this text from Mark chapter 6, this famous story oftentimes called the feeding of the 5,000. I think it has a lot to teach us about the conditions for growth. And I think we'll find these conditions to be a bit counterintuitive and even surprising. So again, if you have a Bible, we're in Mark chapter 6, and we're actually going to go all the way through verse 44. And so let's just start then by walking through this story quickly. So the scene begins with this really important piece of context. It says the apostles returned to Jesus. Now, where had they gone? Where did the apostles go? Earlier in chapter 6, we see that Jesus has sent them out in pairs to proclaim the kingdom, call people to repentance, pray for the sick, and even cast out demons and heal people. And so the disciples, they go out and they do these things, and they're actually quite successful in this mission that Jesus has sent them on. So when they come back to Jesus, they have all these stories to share. Oh, you won't believe what happened when we went out and did this. But admittedly so, they're also tired, right? So verse 31, Jesus is going to invite them to take a break. Hey, let's get away from all this. Go off by ourselves. You guys can recuperate from your adventure. We'll process this a little bit, and then we'll move on to the next thing. But, of course, the plan is foiled. Verse 31, they had no leisure even to eat. Now, at this point in his life, Jesus is still very much a rock star. And wherever he goes, there's this crowd of people that seems to show up and follow him. And so even in this case, as they're trying to get away and treat from everyone, someone finds out and they tweet about it or whatever they did back in those days. And so by the time they get there and show up, there's this huge crowd awaiting Jesus. And when Jesus sees them, he tells them all to go home. He has compassion on them. He has compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd, and he begins to teach them many things. Many, many, many things, apparently. And so it's getting late. Tummies are growling. And so the disciples come to Jesus and they say, hey, you've been going for a while. And it's going to get dark. And these people need to go get something to eat. Not to mention the fact that we never got that break that you promised. We're still pretty hungry ourselves. Their plan is very straightforward. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. How does Jesus respond? You give them something to eat. And the disciples are like, whoa, whoa, come on, Jesus. Where do you expect us to come up with that kind of cash? How do you expect us to pay for this? And just a little bit of context, they refer to this denomination of money called the denarius. And so one denarius was roughly worth about a day's wage for the common laborer. So what they're saying is, hey, to feed all these people, it's going to take the better part of a year's salary. No one's got that kind of money, Jesus. We can't do this. Now, despite their sarcasm and the excuses that they make, Jesus doesn't rebuke them or call them out. He simply tells them, hey, just go see what we have. Just go see what we have. And, of course, they go and they find these five loaves of bread and these two fish. And Jesus is able to turn that into enough food to feed everyone. And not just feed everyone, but there's an abundance of food, right? There's all this food left over. They all ate and were satisfied, and they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish. 
Now again, I think this story teaches us a lot about the conditions for growth. Five, what I would call counterintuitive or surprising conditions needed for growth to happen in our lives. So first, the best place to grow is right here. Many of us, I think, fall into the trap of equating growth with these really intense, even emotional moments and experiences. Things like retreats or mission trips or something that's just sort of out of the ordinary, right? And it's not to say that those things are bad at all. I can list many of those kinds of experiences in my own life. Trips all over the world, an Urbana missions conference that I went to as a college student, studying scripture with friends on Catalina Island and on and on. There's all kinds of these experiences that I have had. And I'm sure you've probably had some of those yourself. But I think there's a danger here. And the danger is that we think we need to go there. We need to go somewhere else, right, to have this kind of experience with God again. And we can miss out on what God is doing right here, right now. And so interesting to me that this story of this miraculous feeding comes right after the disciples have returned from their missions trip. Right? They come back on this spiritual high, buzzing about all the things that they were able to do and see. Where When they were out doing this ministry by themselves, they had to trust God and take risks. And they saw God come through in all kinds of ways. Work through them in all different kinds of ways. And then they come back and all of a sudden Jesus says, you feed them. And it's like excuses and oh, we don't have that. how's this going to work? We don't know how this is going to happen. So again, well, those kinds of experiences are really good and powerful and important and formative What is right in front of you right here, right now? Because these are the conditions for growth. Whatever is right in front of you, your cranky landlord, dishonest clients, frustrating bosses, disobedient kids, that car that continues to break down. Whatever those things are, those are ideal conditions for growth. So the best place to grow is right here. Second, the best time to grow is the worst time. When Jesus tells the disciples, you feed them. Remember, these guys are hungry and tired too. I sometimes run across this line of thinking that says, I just need to take care of myself right now. I just need to get myself together. I need to do me for a while. And then after I sort all of that, then I'll get involved. Erwin McManus writes, Wholeness is not found through receiving, but through giving. Wholeness and generosity are inseparably linked. And so part of what Jesus is teaching the disciples and us in this story is that we grow when we are serving and taking care of others. You feed them. Now, don't get me wrong here. This does not mean that we neglect things like self-care, that we don't have boundaries. But again, we tend to grow more when the focus is off of us. And maybe even the deeper truth here is that if you wait for the right time, if you wait for the right time to grow, to get involved you will find that the right time never seems to come. Third, the best way to grow is when we don't have what we think we need. Okay, that's kind of a mouthful. Let me say it again. The best way to grow is when we don't have what we think we need. Notice how the disciples try to resource their way to a solution. Money comes up a couple different times in this conversation about bread and how are we going to get food to all these people. When the disciples approach Jesus and say, let these people go, what do they say? so they can buy some food. And then when Jesus says, no, you give them something to eat, they respond by noting how expensive it's going to be to buy food for all these people. But notice that Jesus never talks about money in this conversation. Jesus never says anything about money. How often do we just throw money at an issue? 
And if we don't have money to throw at that particular issue, how much time and energy do we spend wishing for, dreaming about some money that we would like to throw at that issue? I think there's all kinds of personal applications here, but I want us to sit with this as a church for a moment. It's easy to look at whatever the challenge is in front of us and to think about money and resources. If we owned a building, if we had a playground, if we had a bigger parking lot, if we had more of this or more of that, then we'd be able to do this, that, and the other thing, right? But here's the thing. Jesus isn't concerned about what we don't have. Jesus isn't concerned with what we don't have. He's thinking about what we do have. In fact, that's the question that he asks in the story. What do you have? Go see. What do you have? Because what we actually have, whether we're talking about our personal lives or the life of the church, that's what Jesus is going to use to bring growth. Fourth, we grow when we are in on the action. We grow when we are in on the action. Now we know how this story ends. Okay, Jesus is going to take care of these hungry people. He's going to make sure that they get food one way or the other. But he starts with the disciples. You feed them. He starts with them because he knows they just went and did some really amazing things. He's heard some of their stories and he wants them to continue building on the experience that they've had. He starts with them because they have all that they need to feed all these people. Five loaves of bread and two fish. Not the kind of resources that are going to inspire a ton of confidence, but they are enough. And then I think he starts with them because he's going to do something really cool, and he wants them to be in on it. He's giving them a chance to participate in his ministry again, to experience his provision for them in this whole other kind of new, tangible, visceral way. Imagine Peter grabbing this loaf of bread and this one fish, and I don't know if he's got a basket or whatever, but he's kind of holding it, and he walks up to the first family, and he's kind of apologetically like, here you go. But then he just keeps reaching in, and there's more. There's another loaf of bread, and there's another fish. I don't know why, but the fish one is funny to me. Like, what would that have been like? Were they, like, flopping around in there, or there's just bits of fish that kept showing up? But imagine, again, if you're Peter and you're able to do that, you're walking around. Every time you reach in, there's another loaf of bread. There's another fish. But they miss out. They miss out on this opportunity to experience Jesus' provision for them in a whole new way. Jesus working through them, not just next to them. I think a lot of us are witness to miracles. We see them in people's lives. We hear about them in a story. We read about them in books. And then we say things like, man, I don't understand why that never happens to me. I don't get it. And Jesus is standing there saying, you feed them. And we say things like, oh, I don't have that kind of money. I don't have those resources. I don't want to serve in that area. And we miss out. And Jesus does not want you to miss out. Fifth, we grow when we realize that there is enough. There is enough. The good news, again, in this story is that it was never up to the disciples, right? It's not like... They blew this opportunity, and then Jesus says, oh, well, I guess we'll all just starve out here in the wilderness. Bummer. Now, this miracle is amazing because of the reality, right? Like, Jesus feeds all these people from five loaves and two fish. But there's a truth behind this miracle that Jesus wants us to see, and it's this. This miracle is a sort of teaching, a sermon, screaming out that in the kingdom of God, there is enough. In fact, there's an abundance. There's more than enough. We tend to focus, I think, often on what isn't. Not enough time, not enough people, 
not enough money, whatever those things are. But Jesus says, no, there is enough. So the best place to grow is right here. The best time to grow is often the worst time. The best way to grow is when we don't have what we think we need. And then we grow when we're in on the action and we grow when we realize that there's enough. So a couple questions and a couple of encouragements. First, what is the circumstance, challenge, opportunity that is right here, right now? And you need to engage with it. My encouragement to you, don't run away from that. Embrace that. Lean into that. Second, are you waiting around for the right time? My encouragement is don't wait. Go for it. Go for it. Third, are you making excuses because you don't think that you have what you need? And again, Jesus is not interested in what you don't have. He's interested in what you do have. So don't make excuses. Look around, see what you have. God is going to use that. Fourth, are you in on the action? God is doing something, guys, here in the Bay Area, here in Oakland, certainly here at Regen. And so my encouragement is don't miss out. Don't miss out on that. Jump in. Be a part of what God is doing. Fifth, do you live with a scarcity mentality? Do you live with a scarcity mentality? In God's kingdom, there's enough. So my encouragement to you is don't worry. Or to quote the most often commanded thing in scripture, fear not. Fear not. There is enough. So I can't make any guarantees for you, but I do know this. These are the conditions that are ripe for growth to happen, both in your life and in the life of this church. So seek them out. Pay attention when they show up and go for it. Go for it. Again, this is part of why I'm so excited about this new chapter for us as a church. The conditions are here as we move to two morning services, which means that we're going to see some really cool things happen, both, again, as a church community, but also in our individual lives. When Amy and I were doing college ministry in Boston, I had the privilege to meet one of our students' parents. And I got to know a little bit more of their story. And in that conversation, they told me that they had been praying for their child for a long time. And that in particular, they had been praying for someone who would come alongside them and help them understand what it means to follow Jesus. And so they looked at me and said, Steve, we've been waiting for someone like you. You are the answer to our prayers. And I was like, whoa, (laughs) we just met. You don't even know me. But as humbling and even as scary in some ways as that was, that was a very clarifying moment for me. Very clarifying moment. And to go back to where we started again, I think we love data in our culture because we so often lack clarity. And numbers, if nothing else, at least bring a semblance of clarity into our lives. But you don't need a number. You don't need a spreadsheet to tell you this. You can be the answer to someone's prayer. And right now, there are people here in Oakland who are praying for a church to belong to. There are hungry people praying for a meal, confused people praying for truth, lonely people praying for a friend. And we can be the answer to their prayers. There are sheep here without a shepherd, and Jesus, we see in this story, is moved by deep compassion for them. And so his invitation to us is to work with him in extending that compassion to those people. And here's the thing. When we join Jesus in that work, we mysteriously become the answer to someone else's prayer, and we will see growth. We'll see it. So this is my prayer for us as we move into this new chapter in the life of our church, that we would see this moment right now 
as a context for growth, that we would jump in and serve whether we have it all together or not, whether we have what we think we need or not, that we would use what we've been given to extend compassion to others, and that we join Jesus in his abundance to serve the city of Oakland. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this story. It's a famous story. It's one that maybe we've heard before, and yet there's a lot of depth and richness to it. And God, as we move into a new, maybe even scary stage, time of transition, may we know that you are working and that these conditions are the kinds of conditions where you tend to do some of your most amazing and best work. And so help us to have the eyes to see and the ears to hear where you're moving. May we join you there. And God, please use us as a church to be the answer to other people's prayers. People who are seeking you, who are seeking community, who are seeking truth, May they find it here, God. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.